Yeah, I hate the documentaries film. that are just a downer. And uh, they're still yes, killing is. midgets at <laughs> the fair. Welcome, everyone, to the Gravity Beard Podcast. We're recording today in Studio A. Thank you, as always, to our listeners. We appreciate your continued support. Okay, let's get going on our Odyssey today. Again, I'm joined by my good friend, John. How are you? Thank you for having me. You're welcome. We're here to continue our conversation with Dallas radio pioneer, George Gamark. George, welcome back to the show. You can tell the pioneers because they've got arrows in their back. (laughs) (laughs) And that's no reference to the arrow radio station, by the way. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, yeah, I guess. I guess I am. That's correct. Okay, well, well, let's pick up. Let's pick things up right here. So when I went to North Texas and entered the radio station there, I showed up with a letter of recommendation and a tape and a resume as an entering freshman. Entering freshmen didn't do that. So you got on air? I was on air as a freshman. Yeah, we're about to get to that, North actually. Texas. Yeah. But did you get on air as an intern? No. At they WRR. Yeah. Not at WRR. Although, said, hey, like, although, come on, let me read this one. And yeah. I was on the air on WRR in my senior high school because there was a there was a very precocious guy by the name of David Corsi who had his own talk show as a high schooler. He was precocious. And he had me, my girlfriend, and a friend of mine on as a kind of a little comedy troupe. And he had us on as guests. And I have a recording of that. My actual first appearance ever on the radio. Yeah. And I'm a senior in high school. But my first time I'd, actually I'd love being, to have a copy of that, by the way, for ooh, this heavens interview. No, heavens no. <laughs> oh, come oh, on. That is terrible. No um, one's going to hold that against you this many years later. And uh, it's going to start somewhere, right? He's, he's not, typically he's not nor- budging. Typically he's not in North no. Texas. I probably have it on this computer. And, Don't uh, tease. And, and typically at uh, North Texas, you didn't get on the air until you were like a junior. You know? right. So I was, I was on as, as a freshman, which gave me, uh, as I had hoped, it gave me that two-year head start uh, from all my classmates. When I was at North Texas, it also, you know, it just it saved so much effort. That was such great advice, getting in early. Well, let's go ahead and jump to that then. So you, you headed off to North Texas, and your major was? <laughs> a useless major. I mean, I might as well have been an English major. I was a radio, television, film major. A completely useless major. Was that a, was that a useless major? Absolutely. Okay. I should have been a business major. <clears throat> okay, If I enough. was a business major, I would have owned 3% of the edge. Got it. Okay. But that I makes sense. didn't. The local radio, or the college radio station, KNTU, you became a DJ, yeah. Almost, almost immediately. I had my yeah, I had my own show. Eventually, oh, oh we're going to get to that. Yeah, eventually, for did, sure, was production director. Uh, yeah. So did, before we jump into that, what what was kind of the state of music at the time? What what was what was trending? Was it transitioning? Was it came to you at the time? Was a top forty station? Okay. So it was it was playing it was it was chart hits and individual block program shows. So we had a guy who did a Rasta show. That was all reggae. Okay, so it was uh, in it was, 1970, 75, 76, He was doing a reggae. And show. what were you listening to at the time? I I was still Mister Fifties. Okay, so got I got on air doing a show with a, a, a guy who was one year older than I was, Andy Waldrop, and we did a show called Jukebox Saturday Night that was a fifties show, fifties and sixties music. Although we drew the line sharply at nineteen sixty five. I was if surprised was you at, went that far. If it was at 65, nah, we wouldn't go there. So I didn't mean to run over what you said, because I think you said something significant. 
what what was groundbreaking about because today it's something we've it's been around for a long time but explain what was groundbreaking about what they were doing on the station at the time uh well they were letting students do whatever they do yeah yeah which is, is Un- unformatted yeah know, it's just come student- in with an idea put it out there for an hour yeah and that really doesn't happen it came to you it, it doesn't it hasn't happened in decades which is sad um but yeah, it, they would, you, oh, you have an idea for a show. What's it going to be? Well, I really want to do a show that about such and such. Okay, let's see what it sounds yeah, like. see what happens. And then you do it. Okay, your slot is uh, Tuesday nights at uh, right. midnight to 2 a.m. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> and they'd, whatever it took to fill the schedule. So did, was the, um, you know, one thing about, I mean, some college radio stations have grown to become major broadcasters in some situations, but I'm assuming at the time that the North Texas uh, uh, band it didn't go very far, right? I mean, did it go north? To, yeah, it was just a, it was a local thing. It was a Denton thing. It just uh, it was although the students listened to it. The student <laughs> actually listened to the radio station. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, unlike now, but uh, yeah, they listened to listened to it quite a bit. We could have an event and people would show up. Well, I mean, you know, in the in the day, still in the seventies, I mean, it was TV and radio. There wasn't a lot of other ways to get your information. And if that's right, you were going to that school, you had to listen to the to the station. So we had the 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 oldie show was going Which on, which people it, may not understand now. And it and it was doing <laughs> it was it was doing well. Um, and around that time, so it's like um, I'm trying to think. It's it's early seventy six or whatever. My friend Don, who had who had bending my ears with so i'm listening to oldie stuff uh and i've kind of given up on swing at this time and i'm diddle i'm diddling around in in reggae and i'm diddling around in electronic stuff and he starts getting these dangerous magazines from new york he had uh the new york rocker he had a a, a subscription to that and he, we would read in there about uh this punk thing that was happening up in new york early in 76 and in the vernacular of the time, punk was garage bands. Punk was the Seeds, the Standells. That was garage bands of the 60s that were not psychedelic. Hmm. And we liked those records. We collected those records. And so we heard about this punk thing going on in New York. Oh, there's a revival of 60s garage bands. Cool. And there would be ads in the back where for, you know, like a dollar ten, you could... St- send a dollar ten off to this band and they would send you their 45 and we started mailing away we'd order two copies of the 45 and we started getting these records from peru and television and you know devo and it's like oh these are not garage records these are really weird records and then it was around that same time that the radio station we received the first single from the ramones and it showed up, and somebody said, "You like you like fifty stuff." So that came in from their distributor, right? That right, came this in from Sire some, Records. Yeah, hey, I'm gonna, okay. And they said, "This sounds like your sort of thing." And they lay this Ramones record. <laughs> you on like me. fifty stuff, and they give you a Ramones record <laughs> because it sounded like the Beach Boys on amphetamines, right? I mean, it was just it was this hopped up, <laughs> right? Surf Makes sort sense. of thing, and with out of context, that was that's totally what it sounded like. And then not long after that, you end up seeing pictures of Elvis Costello. Well, he looks like Buddy Holly. Right. Good point. But he's singing these really odd, angular, old-style songs, but with this real... Lyrically very intense. Yeah. There. And so I start getting into this new music, this new punk stuff. Let, let me transition into that by saying this, because I, I think I know where you're going. 
and that's where I, that's what I want to talk about. I'm sure you're aware that Showtime recently released a documentary called New Wave Dare to Be Different about the influence of Long Island radio station WLIR. Correct. In that documentary, they give that station a huge amount of credit for introducing some of the biggest British bands of the 80s to the United States. We're talking U2, The Cure, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, yeah. Billy Idol. I mean, you know, the list goes on. So here's why I bring that up. So in, in the spring of 77, which is what where we're getting to right in your story, as a college student, you started a weekly radio show that you're talking about, I, th- I think, where you're going, called The Rock and Roll Alternative. Well, it was called Punk and New Wave. Okay. At the time. Right. And it was. It was It was one of the first regular New Wave and punk radio, station, radio shows in the country, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. There were, there were three or four of us doing it. There was a guy in L.A. There was a guy in San Diego. There was a guy, I think, in Salt Lake City. There was a guy up in New York. Okay. But yeah. But, but so it was happening. It was it was the it was the monkey it was the the million monkeys at a typewriter. It was a good idea. It was a, <laughs> it was an idea that was in the wind. Okay. So it was, I see. It happened. So I want you to talk a little bit about the well we are talking about the timeline of your show and compare that to WLIR because they they didn't make the format change to that <clears throat> that they're so famous for until 1982. That was 5 years after you started what you were doing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a documentary. Do you believe documentaries? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, because it's a documentary. I, I will give them credit. They did what they did in their region. Okay. But at the time... It, you in, know, a, in a mass way. Right. When you're, when you're looking at stuff on a, on a national scale, you, it's, you can't really... It's unfair to say, oh, they broke it in America. Because right. they were doing, there was somebody doing that in San Francisco. There right. was somebody doing that in L.A. I was doing it in Dallas. There were, I mean, there were there were a couple of us Johnny Appleseeds, and in our our area of the state, or two or three states, we were we were it. I think that's very gracious of you to say. Here's the distinction that I want to make: is that everyone else in the country that was doing it were well established radio stations that were trying to figure out what format to run. You were doing it as a college student. Well, no, there were other people that were doing it on a college level. I think Max Tolkoff was doing it on a okay. college level. Got it. Um, but yeah, I mean, when it came down to doing it on a on a, a real live commercial station, I I think K Rock actually was on the air as a commercial station before WLIR was. Um, I think um, focusing on alternative or yeah, this new yeah. wave. This new yeah, doing the alternative new wave thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's a great idea with many fathers. Got it. You know, but that was a documentary. True. Fair enough. It was, it was one person's point of view in their rosy, you know, thing. I, I had, uh, the, the, the little untold bit and I'm actually going to show, tell him something he doesn't know. Oh gosh. It's hard to, you know how hard that is to do? Uh, I would have been. WLIR's last employee. Oh no, I was oh. going to get to that. Oh damn it! You <laughs> knew it. Oh, oh Chris I'm, is very thorough. I am, you know, I am gutted. Oh, geez. but we want to hear it anyway. No, yeah. no. Well, I, we will get to that. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you because you were just mentioning how you were given this Ramones record and say, "Hey, play well, this." Because well, the Ramones fan. record, yeah, I thought you'd like this. It was like, oh my god, this is yeah, it's great. And then I, I finally had about forty records that I had cobbled through the mail and what have you yeah. and through the import bins over at, at Peach's Records uh, 
And I said, well, can I put together a show where I play this stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Punk and New Wave, yeah. And so I, I put together the, this little show in spring of 77. So just in terms of what you were interested in, how did you, how did you talk yourself into or out of this? this I mean, you were interested oh, in the 50s, the, and, then, and then you... Oh, it was, it was all part of the same continuum. It was all, it was all kind of... One was derived very, from the other. Very simple music. I mean... Yeah, I mean, it really wasn't that distant from what was going on in the mid-60s, okay. stylistically. Got it. But at that uh, time, it was considered kind of bad boy, right? I mean, yeah, that's, well, yeah. You, you mentioned earlier in the interview that, but, yes, you liked the, yeah, but the, 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 the rebellious side of things. But college radio at that time at North Texas was so, you know, <laughs> there, weren't, there weren't any training wheels on it. So, you know, they would let you do whatever. You know, so it was it was easy. You could you could get away with that. If you could stuff. fill air, they would let you do it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it was it was simple. Well, let's see. Uh, and, and then how did how did things go from? Uh, I'm going to start this. That's fantastic. <laughs> George, George is showing us pictures of. Yeah, how terrible is that? Of himself, that's not terrible. Of of himself in, in the in the studio at KNTU. So how how did things go from this from this punk new wave thing it hadn't quite come together to the show that you did the rock and roll alternative? Well, I did the show uh, all through seventy seven, seventy eight, seventy nine, and uh, then when it ta- came time to graduate, graduate, get into the real world, um, I thought, well, I got to see if I can take this to Dallas because it was the show was doing really well okay. at North Texas. And I was interviewing bands. I, you know, I was interviewing the Ramones and Squeeze and Devo and when they were all coming through town. And in 1980, Dallas still didn't have a regular punk or new wave club, did not exist at that time. There would be little pop-ups every once in a while. So it was a scene getting ready to happen. So uh, I went out and uh, my first interview was with uh, uh, Q102. Can I ask you one question yeah. before you get to that? You had a primary theme song for the show. I read well, this note. Okay, uh, <laughs> I want you to confirm if this is true. At the at the at the very, f- I'm trying to think of what I would have used. I'd have to, you know, I'd almost have to listen to one of the recordings. I, I have I have very few recordings of Can to You. Um, I know at one time I was using South of the Surf by the Schematics, which was a local record. Basically, they become NCM. And I used that for quite some time. And then around 79, I started using uh, a flip side to a B-52s record, which was called Running Around.
British single as a, the British single version of Running Around had no vocal on it. It was an instrumental. Right. And it was a great instrumental. It was a good surf instrumental. And so I used that for I used that my last year or so at KNTU and my first two or three years at the zoo. Because I read a note that you were using a Bengal song off of their first well, yeah, album. Well, that comes around in, in Later. 83. Okay, I see. Because okay. uh, what happens is the Bengals come through around to 83 as a, as a brand new band. They aren't even signed to a major label yet. Right. And I really help them out. And, you know, I'm really, I, I get tight with them. And they make the, the remark, if there's anything we can do for you, let me know. <laughs> And I said, since, you know, you asked. I've been using the same theme song for like four years. And I said, I really could use a new theme song, you know, something to play at the beginning of the show. Oh, okay. So while they're in the sessions for their very first album for Columbia, they cut a theme song for me and they <laughs> send me a master tape of it. A song that's not on the album. Correct. And they, they send me the master tape. Here's your, here's your song. Yeah, and no I used that, I used that for the next ten years. Fantastic. And the the chapter two to that is that years and years later, in fact, just what well, was it, it would have been about a year and a half ago, Vicky Peterson, who I am in contact with every once in a while, asked me, "Do you still have that reel?" And I said, "Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do." She says, "Can you send me a digital dub of it?" Sure, send her a digital dub of it, and it showed up on a Bangles album. Uh, they did a vinyl LP of rare tracks, mm-hmm. and they put it out on on vinyl. And it was like, oh my god, it <laughs> actually it's available now. Getting from North Texas, came to you up to Dallas, was just a little bit of chutzpah. It was it was going to Q102, which was the second rated album rock station in town. I thought, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's, <laughs> let's go to the second best station <laughs> behind the zoo and behind the zoo. Right at the time, 1980. It's it's uh, it's early night. It's like January of January, February, something like that. No, it's actually I think it's March of 80, March of 80. And uh, Q102 is well, what do you want to do, kid? You know, well, I want to do the show, you know, punk and new wave stuff. And he says, no, 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 we don't play any of that music. Crap, get out of here. You know, they ran me out of the station. I mean, wouldn't even talk to me. Wow. And so I said, oh, okay, I got to go to the zoo. Well, I'd been to the zoo when I was in high school. That that article that I wrote in 1975, five sure. years earlier, sure. I had been to the zoo. And so here I am going back there as, as now a, a, a college granulate. And, um, and it's like, oh, God, I'm going to go talk to the zoo. And I get a meeting with the program director and like, well, what do you, what's your idea for your show? And I say, well, is this punk and new wave show? And he says, ah, it's outside what we, I would not really interested in that sort of music. And I said, well, that's kind of what they, you said, everybody's been saying. That's I where said, it's going, old man. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> you know, uh, well, I'm straight out of school. Um, and I've been a, ahead of everybody else in my class. And I haven't really been able to get any good uh, critique on what I do. Would you mind hearing my air check and just kind of giving me any pointers you could? Because since you're a pro, and he says, yeah, I can give you a couple minutes. So I hand him my reel, my little air check reel of the show. 
And this is a guy named Tom Owens, by the way. And uh, Tom puts it on this reel-to-reel deck behind his desk. And he spins it up and he turns his back to me. And the thing starts playing. Typically in this situation, somebody will suss you out in about 60 seconds. And it'll shut off and you'll be out of there. That's absolutely typical. Right. You've got 60 seconds. To That's actually yourself. what I expected you to do to John and I right. here in this interview. It's a good point. So I was very happy when we made it past 60 seconds with you. See, people, don't, my house. people don't know this is the fourth day of recording because I've, I've actually thrown these guys out of my house three times. <laughs> we just won't leave. <laughs> we, we, we pitched a tent in George's yeah. front yard and we would not leave. He got tired of the campfire. <laughs> and uh, so he, he turns his back to me and he listens. He spins up the reel and it goes and it goes and it goes. And he plays the thing through 10 minutes. Wow. He spins the entire until it whack, 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 and he rewinds it. And he spins around in his chair, and he's looking at me with his fingers tented. And he says, well, when can you start? And it was like totally not what I expected. Because I mean, yeah. he had already told me, there's, there's no place here for that. Yeah. And when can you start? And I said, I can start whenever I need to. And he says, uh, let's, let's start you in May. Uh, can you, can you start, can you, we could use some little help around the, the station. Can you, can you come here? We can put you on part time. And so I started working in March of 80. I started working at the zoo and I did call out phone research and I filed records at the, in the library and I was just kind of a dog's body. Cause I was about 10 years younger than everybody else at the station. So I was the kid. And then May 18th, 1980, which was the same day that Ian Curtis killed himself, Joy Division. It was the same day that Mount St. Helens blew up. Uh, the rock and roll alternative hit the air. Now I have to back up just a tad. The show when I gave him the tape was called Punk and New Wave. What a title! And uh, <laughs> keep it simple, kid. And uh, and he said that won't do. You know, well he says when, you know when can you start? And then he said you have to come up with a new title for the show. And he said, what are you going to call it? I mean, he just puts me on the spot. I was going to say, put you on the spot. Yeah, it's not, it's not, you got to come up with something. Let me know what it is next week. He just looked at me across the desk. He's just hired me. And, and offered n- nothing. He offered no suggestions. No. What are you going to call it? <laughs> and he just like, it just looked at me and it's like, I can't disappoint, you know. And this was a story. And I have to, I have to say, I didn't tell this story until probably about 2000 the year 2000 because I was just it was just so uncool um, I never revealed where the name of the show came from mm. because it was just it was so terribly uncool <laughs> um, he's looking at me he's saying what are you going to call the show and behind his desk there's a stack of albums and the one on the very front of the stack is by the Atlanta Rhythm Section and it's called A Rock and Roll Alternative that's the name of the album. Atlanta Rhythm Section, a very kind of mundane Southern rock. <laughs> right, right. But that's the name of the album. It's a, a rock and roll alternative. So, I, so they went the other direction with the, the concept behind that. Name. <laughs> yeah. And so I... so I Like I yours just, was progressive. Theirs was... Yeah, regressive. Very regressive. Yeah. And, and so I just said, how about rock and roll alternative? And he, and he just <laughs> looks at me and he says, I like that. It's good. 
Let's go with that. And he didn't put it together. Nobody at the station put it together. That is incredible. The whole time I worked there, nobody nobody ever held up the album and went, hey. It never George, happened. It was, such, it was such an unimportant album. Nobody ever put it together. I would have been I would have been so embarrassed if anybody ever put that together. And I got away with it. And it was like, oh my God. You know. And uh so yeah, it became the Rock and Roll Turn. It went on the air May eighteenth, nineteen eighty, and they gave me oh, I think ninety minutes the the first time. And, and what, was, bumped, what was the time slot? Uh, it was uh, like I think it was from eleven until twelve thirty. Okay, and then the overnight guy would come in, and that lasted for about a year. And then Tom Owens got fired in a scandal, and that, an interim, that'll happen. It'll happen. And an interim program director came in who didn't get it. And he kept me on as a part-time employee, but he f- quit the show. He took the show off the air. The station got an enormous amount of mail and phone calls and saying, oh, you pulled the show off the air. Because it was, I mean, it was a big deal. It was, on, it was on the zoo. I mean, that was the number one rock station in town. And all of a sudden, they're playing new music. And I didn't realize how big the show had become until, you know, he basically, after about, I think I'm off the air for five weeks, and he gets bullied into putting it back on the air uh, partially by some of the air staff on the zoo saying you know i mean john b wells uh, my hero uh went to the new program director and said you need to put this guy back on the air because i mean this really this is what's making our station uh defining the uh, the out the experimental edge of our station because we're doing all the journey and yeah and sure. aerosmith and what have you but this guy's actually playing the other stuff that we will probably be playing in a couple of years He's the guy that's you know playing the U two record and and what have you. Right. So, uh, I went back in the air and it was smooth sailing until uh, we all left or got fired Christmas of eighty uh, six, yeah, Christmas eighty six, January of eighty seven. So it was a good run on the zoo. It was uh, it was my first radio family. Um, I still talked to quite a few of those people. I I, I didn't care for the music that the zoo played because I was on the other side of the fence. But I liked the people. Uh, if you've ever seen the old movie FM, uh, I basically was kind of living in that movie. I mean, that was kind of what the zoo was like. It was uh, hippy-dippy radio you yeah. know, in a commercial building. Everyone's happy, and the ratings are soaring at Q Sky Radio. We have done it, and we are going to cook and cook and cook and cook. But the top brass think things could be even better. Just go sending the dude here to get these big accounts to put spots on our station. I'm Regis Lamar from Chicago. Look, hell, I don't give a shit. You're the Messiah from Jerusalem. Come here to make my life perfect. What do they care about music? Well, to tell you the truth, I can take it or leave it. All they care about is money. Whoa, commercials. Yeah, too bad we can't get rid of the music completely, huh? Yeah. Everybody has to bend a little we going to let him do this to us? No oh. way. Okay. few years at the zoo than I ever did at college about the radio business. Oh, yeah. Well, and in the early years, you were one of the first guys to use the term classic rock. Yeah, back when, uh, and that was about 
80, I'm trying to think 82, 83, WFAA AM was a news talk station. It was a very expensive format to run because you have to pay all these people to come in and do talk shows. It's not like they do a free podcast or anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who, would, who would do that? <laughs> no Silly. one. That makes no, no one. sense. Uh, so uh, I went and talked to the program director, and I had, uh, since I was, I would answer the phones and what have you over at the zoo, we would get all these phone calls, requests for Hendrix and Credence and Beatles and Cream, and we couldn't play them because we didn't have enough room in the playlist right. to play those records. We did, they just no room. And so I said, I got this notion for putting on a music station on AM that would play all these rock and roll, you know, classics and, uh, and, and basically fill that gap that the zoo can't do and be a sister station. And so he said, you know, his test was, he was from Detroit and he said, do you know the, because he said, do you know the music? And I said, yeah, I, I know that music really well. And he didn't believe me because I was too young to know that music right and he said okay here's your test you need to find a record for me you need to find the underdogs doing man in the glass i went okay <laughs> i'll find it doing Man in the Glass. Well, the underdogs doing Man in the Glass was a local hit in Detroit when he was a teenager. Wow. In the how, did, 60s. how did you find that? I had it in my collection. Really? Oh. Yeah. Of course he did. Lucky. <laughs> Lucky. Now, I, now, coincidentally, we've got a, a pretty robust Facebook group for independent podcasters that I called the Underdog Podcast Community. <laughs> there so that, you go. There you go. There's a tie-in. So, so I was able to you know, meet Tom Bender's request, and he said, okay, fine, you're the guy put it together so i put together a station that played it played hendrix and cream and the beatles and then it played 50 stuff like it would play some elvis and some jerry lee and some chuck berry the rockin side of the 50s right. not the doo-wop side and it was a really fun station and it started doing really really well for about a year we owned that space for about a year year and a half and then uh two things happened there was a there was a, a consultant who worked for the the fm uh, the and consultant. he came in he came in and heard what we were doing and thought this is really cool stuff downloaded my computer with my other program director's uh permission took it on the road and started setting it up all over the country oh, right. trimmed out all the 50 stuff kept the set the 70 stuff and then at about the same time uh uh there was this guy who had uh left or had started up, he had uh, 92 and a half, which was a, a country station at the time on FM. And they were, they were floundering. They were looking for something new to do. 
And he said, this little AM pop-up with this classic rock is doing really well. Maybe we ought to look into that. And they basically copied my playlist and put it on the air on 92 and a half, which is now Lone Star, playing basically the same records. But it was and it was KZPS classic rock for years. It was. Right? Yeah. So they he basically... Yeah. I mean, when John and I were growing up, that's what we remember <clears throat> right, KZPS. Right. So he copied what... I was doing on the AM on FM and right. it killed me just totally. Uh-huh. Nobody wanted to hear it on AM. They wanted to hear it in stereo sure. on the FM. So ratings went down to nothing. And about that time, a new program director came in and he came in and took over the station. Uh, K, it was called K rocks, KRQX. And he took over K rocks and he, he didn't understand the classic rock stuff. And he went back to playing, you know, good oldies and, and carpenters and all that. I'm out of here. (laughs) Right. You know, and I went back to being Mr. New Wave guy. But uh, for a while there, I had this dual existence where I was on the zoo as George Gamark, but I was across the hall as Jim Dark uh, hosting, uh, being a disc jockey on the classic rock station as well. But I was Jim Dark, you know, so. And and then actually when, when the zoo changed formats and you guys left, you spent a couple of years at KZPS. I did, yeah. I mean, why not? You go, <laughs> they know who I. They definitely knew who I was. And, and you did a show called Backpages. What was Backpages. that? Backpages. Backpages was the beginning of my storytelling years. Uh, that was a show that the pitch to the show was: I'm going to play one of your songs off of your playlist. I'm going to play one of my story songs, and then I'm going to play a deep cut by somebody you play so i might play oh wow something by jefferson airplane and then i'll play a song from uh the great society and i'll talk about how grace slick came out of the great society and joined the jefferson airplane so the setup would be i'd play i'd play the great i i stop down and i would tell you the story of how the how the great society was this cool little band and they had this singer named you know grace slick and she had these two killer songs, one called White Rabbit, one called Somebody to Love. And the Jefferson Airplane had already put out one album and they had, they had basically stiffed. They had failed. And so they asked Grace to join the band and she joins the band and she brings in her suitcase these two songs, which basically define right. the Jefferson Airplane for the next year. That's right. And so I play The Great Society and then I play the Jefferson Airplane. And then after that, I'll play a Grateful Dead deep track or I'll play a, a deep cut from a Genesis or something like that. And there was those little three songs and that would be about 15 minutes. And then I would do it, I'd reset and I'd do it again and again and again and again. And so it was storytelling. Uh-huh. And it was a very, very popular show. And, the, and the, this is where I became a little bit of an entrepreneur because I came in there and I'd set up my own company, Real George Productions. And I told the guy, at CPS, I said, don't pay me. I don't, you, I'm not going to be one of your air staff. I, I'm just going to come in here. I'm going to do the show. And you don't have to pay me a penny. But right now, you have spots for, you have spaces for 12 commercials. You're only running three or four commercials an hour on Sunday mornings. So I want three commercials an hour that I can go out and sell for whatever I can sell them for. I won't step on any of your advertisers. I won't. I will set my own rates. I might do barter. Um, and you don't have to pay me a penny. But it won't cost you anything, and you're not selling the spots. So what do you have to lose? And he said, eh, okay, fine. So he gave me inventory. So I had commercials. I basically became a syndicator. 
Yeah, with uh, yeah. one station yeah. in a major market. And I went out and I started trading those spots for car repair and for restaurants and what have you. And I was getting every every show. This is a, this is nineteen eighty seven, eighty eight. I six or eight hundred dollars a week doing that one show, that one show. That was decent. That was sure. That was okay. Um, and it got to the point where the ratings on the show were so good that the station started selling out all their inventory, and he wanted to claw back the inventory that I had. And uh-huh. he said, "Why don't we go ahead and make you staff?" Because we want those spots, and I said, "Fine, if you give me the value for the spots, right, buy me out. You're welcome to have them." And he says, "What's that?" And I said, "It's eight hundred dollars." And he was going, "I can't pay you eight hundred dollars for one show." And I said, "That's what I'm making." <laughs> Sorry, and he was, he was, and I said, "Well, look at it this way: your other spots are selling, and you're making a lot of money off that." And so that was that was bumping along, and that was really fine, and it was comfortable, and I was, yeah. and then. And then the, I saw in the trades that there was the acquisition of 94.5, so which was, so which before was I get to be Z-Rock. Yeah, you, you referenced this earlier. So you, just to circle back a little bit, you very briefly crossed paths with WLIR oh. one more time. Okay, so that is, yeah, that is 87. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, yeah, early 87, because I'm at KNON. At that time, because I did stop for about six months at KNON mm-hmm. uh, to do the rock and roll alternative, and around that time, uh, KNON or WIR was looking for a new morning guy, right? And so I said, I had friends saying, "You got to audition for that." WIR at the time, they were one of the two big, two or three big alternative stations in the in the country. In the country, right? And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be that guy, I ought to go. I can go to the number, nation's number one market. Well, honestly, it's not the number one market, but it's it's adjacent to the number one market. Right, right. And and I said, let me let me try. So I I called and I had I, I they said, yeah, come on up. You know, we really like your resume. You you know, you're coming from a good pedigree. You're coming from a very very good station. So I got a lot of respect coming from the zoo, coming from Dallas, a big market. And so they flew me up, and they put me on overnight. You know, one night. You know, so basically I was there from like midnight to five and I did the midnight to five shift. And then the next morning had the, uh, had the meeting with the, the station ownership and the program director. And they said, yeah, we really like what you did. You know, you're, you're really, yeah, you're, you're what we need. Uh, and it was like, oh man, this is going to be so cool. I can actually be a New York jock, you know, at, at this cool station. And then they said, and here's what we can pay you. And they slide the piece of paper across the the table and they will to do mornings they wanted to pay me twenty four thousand dollars a year <laughs> and it was like uh, you didn't jump all over that <laughs> i can't do that and live in uh in new york metro and well it would be it living, was on, in, long living on long island, long island but, new york but metro. still they, and they said well you know a lot of our air staff have second and third jobs yeah. <laughs> and i said they probably live with their parents they can hook too you up with the pizza delivery gig. you know and it's like i am not going to do morning drive and have a second job. I, it breaks my heart, but I can't do this. I just can't. Too expensive to live there. And turned it down. And about two weeks later, a friend of mine called and said, "Did you ever want the record?" It was Diane Tamicha, uh, 
the record goddess. And she called me and said, you didn't take that job, did you? And I said, no. She said, they lost their license. Yeah. They're off the air. And I went, oh, my God. That would have been a disaster. If you'd have moved all the way up there. Oh. And yeah. And as soon as you get there, bang, Boom. the job's gone. Because it's not like they change ownership or anything. That They close the they doors. Just, they lost the license. Lost the they license, are right. no more. Right. And, and of course, were. people can go watch the documentary and watch yeah, get no, that the, version of the whole story. Now, the 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 third act of that, which is it broken my heart, is I felt I always felt like I had this kind of almost connection to WIR, and in the years <clears> ensuing, <throat> a couple a, a year ago, I guess just about a year ago, I put the zoo back on the air on vocal. Uh, on the vocal app, you can actually hear the zoo, and it's a lot of the air staff, and it's a lot of the music, and it's all programmed, and it sounds great, and it's doing very very well. And then I created Fuzzbox, which was kind of like what the edge should have been had it have stayed on the, the true path. And so when I saw the documentary, I said, you know, it wouldn't take me but about a week. I could put WLIR back on the air on vocal and gather up some of the air staff, have them cut voice tracks. I've already got all the music digitized. I've already got the, the format built in a computer. We could put this thing back on the air in a couple of weeks. And I contacted the, the Dennis McNamara, the, the principal guy who's the driving force behind it. And I said, I can do this for you if you're interested. Yeah, let me get back to you. Let me get back to you. Let me get back to you. And he just kept putting me off and putting me off and putting me off. And I floated the idea with a couple of the, the jocks. And eh, 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 I don't know. And it's like they're, they seem to be content to live in the nostalgia of their failed station rather than bring it back because I was telling Ellen the gal who did the documentary I said wouldn't it be cool at the last frame of your documentary you say and now after 30 years it's back and you have here's where it is absolutely and, and the station and the documentary we would have had this uplifting ending where it's you know look after all this year in the wilderness it's back the dream has been completed and that's what I wanted to do and it was just like seriously you're gonna pass on this <laughs> but they did and i was like yeah okay i and can now the I can only gone. Ask, i mean it's i can only ask him so many times kind of peaks up and then it fades out and you have to strike when oh we could probably still come back but i mean that would have been you know when ellen did that that screening down here i said could you because <clears throat> it wouldn't have taken them much to recut that last slide to say and now it's back right and it would have been that unexpected twist at the end <laughs> that would have been uh, so cool. Well, and as you said, a much more positive way to end. Yeah, I hate documentaries film. that are just a downer, and uh, they're still yes, killing midgets at <laughs> the fair. You know, and it's just kind of like, oh god, I knew it was going that way. So <laughs> it's like none of my friends knew about the WLIR. I didn't tell anybody about that WLIR thing. Well, you told me. Yeah, but I mean, when it was happening oh. at the time, mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't tell anybody. Why not? Um, because uh, I was leaving Dallas, and it was oh. kind of like you know, it was kind of like I'm turning my back on the the city that you know helped build me up. Right. Um, that would have been, and that would have been a strange trip because if I had gone to if I'd gone to WLIR and it hadn't gone under, and I'd become that guy there, there's a there's a strong possibility I would have gotten involved. Uh, with MTV VH1. There's a very strong possibility that I would have gone that way. Would the edge have happened in 90, in 89? Yeah. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, I certainly probably wouldn't have 
gone down. I might have done the book, but I probably wouldn't have done uh, the Johnny Rotten thing. I probably wouldn't have done the patents. Um, there's, you know, that's it's it's definitely a, a fork in the road. Absolutely. And you know, we all have those those Damask those road to Damascus moments, and I mean that was that was certainly one of them for me. But it was it was very much a a, a secret. Uh, for for a long time. It appears we've run out of time again. George, can you join us for one more episode? Uh, I think I already did. (laughs) Great. We appreciate it. John, I'm assuming you're available as well. I'm going to stay here and listen to this wonderful content. Excellent. Listeners, please come back for the conclusion of our time with George as we wrap up our discussion about his experiences and career in Dallas radio. We'll see you next time. Typically in this situation... Somebody will suss you out in about 60 seconds and it'll shut off and you'll be out of there. That's absolutely typical. Right. You've got 60 seconds. To That's actually yourself. what I expected you to do to John and I right here in this interview. It's a good point. So I was very happy when we made it past 60 seconds. WFAA AM was a news talk station. It was a very expensive format to run because you have to pay all these people to come in and do talk shows. It's not like they do a free podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who, would, who would do that? <laughs> no Silly. That makes no, no sense. You need to find the underdogs. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. Check out more shows like it at oddfixnetwork.com.